0: This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Uh, Do me a favor, turn, uh, get a Bible out if you have it. If not, just grab uh, your phone. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew 27 tonight, and so today is Palm Sunday. Uh, This is the day where the church celebrates the triumphal entry when Jesus uh, comes into Jerusalem the week before he dies and raises again. And uh, normally this is a Sunday we teach on that passage, but because this Uh, This week we will not have an opportunity to teach on Good Friday. I really felt impressed in my heart to teach on the cross. And so I think this will kind of set our hearts right uh, as we look towards Easter, as we look towards Good Friday, to give us a week of just beginning to think through uh, the implications of what the cross means. And so we're taking a little bit of a pause from our normal series called Heart Renovation, and we're going to be doing a little mini series, a few conversations Called Love Conquers All, so I uh, hope you guys join us next Sunday. Those uh, flyers on your seats are for you to take and give them away. Uh, they are specific to Easter, so you can't give them away after next Sunday. I would encourage you guys just to think through someone who may need to come and hear uh, the gospel and hear a message of hope. And uh, and tonight, uh, as we as we dive into the cross, uh, I had a situation that um, kind of helped me. I uh, think through this week, I was on my way out to Nevada with my family, and we were going to visit my new nephew, and the, as soon as we get there, you guys ever notice this on road trips, the kids were like awesome, like stellar, and then as soon as we're like 20 minutes away, the wheels fall off, like everyone just goes nuts, like it's like they can smell it, like they know it's at the end, and they just like start to like just kind of, I don't know, it's uh, kind of glitched and started like, ah. And so we get out of the car. We're like, can everyone just get out? We get up to our room. They're running around, like, just going, just going you know, insane. And I'm like, hey, Jen, you watch the kids. I'm going to go get the bags. <laughs> Smart move. And uh, so I leave. I come back, and I hear, like, abnormally loud screaming. Screaming is normal. But this was abnormally loud screaming coming from the room. Like, oh, man, what happened? So I walk in, and... Um, and my three daughters are like freaking out. They're like, Dad, we tried to call you, like something's wrong with Augie. And I look and Jen's holding him and there's like blood like everywhere. I'm like, oh my gosh, what happened? He had fallen and there was a like Starbucks cup with a metal straw and fell and it went through his cheek. Um, so yeah, not, not good. Um, so the girls are like, is he gonna die? I'm like, no, he's gonna be okay. And um, so I, we're, like, literally there five minutes, and I'm, like, calling the nearest, like, Las Vegas ER, trying to figure out, like, what do I do? And so, you know, I'm kind of put him in his car seat and just handed him a towel. I'm, like, hey, just put this on your face. And he's, like, oh, okay. Like, so I drive to the ER, get there, and I take him to the doctor. I'm, like, what, you know, what do you, what do we need to do? And he's, like, okay, well, either we either need to do stitches or we need to do glue. And so, um, so they ended up, like, gluing, like, his mouth shut. And um, it was pretty pretty intense process, but like, and the whole time I'm looking at the doctor and with this question in mind, is, is this gonna work? You know, like, is this solution you're providing going to be enough to, to cover the, you know, the disaster that just happened? And the doctor assured me, like, it's fine. This is gonna be enough. I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm like, what happens if it starts bleeding again? He's like, it won't start bleeding again. You're good. I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm driving home, and all of a sudden, I hear um, I hear Augustine just go, ew, gross. I'm like, what? And he had ripped the glue off. His... I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, why? Why? And um, so we, like, pull over to, like, CVS and get our own, like, liquids. I'm just, like, trying to... And I mean, is it being fine and, and stuff like that? But it was, it was definitely a kind of a moment where I was kind of like, man, I didn't really kind of work out how I thought it was going to work out. And that was maybe a little bit more intense than I even was prepared for. And the reason I bring up that story is I think every single one of us has, uh, comes to these realizations, comes to these moments, especially as we get older and experience more life, where we begin to start realizing that there's something wrong in the world, and for the Christian, for those who follow Jesus, we believe that the core issue of that is something called sin, and that that has disrupted the the peace and the goodness that this world was always intended to have. And when we when we face those moments where things just begin to become unravelled, or we or we hear tragic news, or we experience uh, the loss of something, uh, there is this sense where we're we we are Looking for a solution. And largely, the, the secular narrative is uh, escape or numb. And for the Christian, the, the, the solution they offer is the cross. So Jesus' death has to do with the brokenness in our world. And the question I want to bring up today, like I wanted to bring up to the doctor, is is that enough? Is the cross enough for the brokenness we experience in our world? And uh, and my hope today is we would leave here with a sense in our heart of the significance and completeness and the power of what Jesus on the cross represents. And I have to I have to warn you a little bit tonight's a little bit of a heady uh, message but I believe that there's there's a richness to it of looking and understanding the cross maybe in a different perspective. Um, So if you guys will stick with me, at the end uh, we will experience relevance, we will experience what this means for our lives. So three objectives tonight if you guys are taking notes, we're gonna make this pretty simple. Uh, Number one, the first objective is this, did Jesus die? Uh, Now that might kind of seem elementary to you, Uh, yes, check. Move on, next point. Uh, but I want to pause at that. Did Jesus die on the cross for two reasons? One, there are people in this room um, who are exploring their faith in Jesus, um, who we've had open conversations about them coming and trying to figure out if they're ready to put their faith in Jesus of Nazareth. And understanding did Jesus die is a pretty important question. Secondly, there are people in this room that you're going to have conversations with and you go back to work or go to your classrooms, and you're going to be asking yourself uh, and they're going to be asking you, well, did Jesus even die on the cross? And so we're going to be looking at just this, simply the historical event of the cross. Is that something logically and reasonably we can, we can stand upon? So that's the first objective. Second objective is this. Um, why did Jesus die? Why did he die? So if he died, why did he have to die? Um, and so we're going to be looking at the complete, uh, the, kind of the complete work um, of the cross. And thirdly, what does that mean for us? Did Jesus die? Why did he die? What does it mean for us? And so uh, we're going to be kind of working through each one of those things. So let's tackle that first one. Did Jesus die? Uh, so, Matthew 27, we're going to start in verse 45. We're going to read about the account of Jesus' death from uh, the, the lens of one of his apostles named Matthew. So, Matthew. Um, wrote a biography of Jesus' life along with three other people, compiled, they're called The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Matthew uh, writes his gospel, his biography of Jesus' life, specifically to a Jewish audience. He's trying for them to understand Jesus as uh, the Mashiach or the Messiah. And for first century Jews... Um, And even to this day, the the Jewish community has these prophecies, hundreds and hundreds of years old, telling them that someday they would have a king and a rescuer come and save them from the oppressive power that they were underneath. And so you grew up with your grandparents and your parents telling you that the Messiah would come. And Matthew's gospel lays out why Jesus is the Messiah, and speaks directly to that. And so let's read that. Um, let's read this text with that in mind. Matthew 27, starting in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is yelling that out in Aramaic, his native tongue. And it was such a powerful moment that the, that the authors of the text actually record it in his native tongue because it ingrained so powerfully in them. When some of those standing heard, there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Again, seeing if he's the Messiah. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of, the many, of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified and exclaimed, "Surely, he was the Son of God." Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Hey, shout out to women, right? Where are all the guys? Running away, cowards. Girls, just faithful. There till the end. Um, so. We're, uh, I wanted to stop for a moment and ask, is this trustworthy? Can we read this? There was a guy um, a few years back who graduated from Yale School of Law, became a lawyer and then eventually a journalist, and actually the head of journalism at the Chicago Tribune, Um, staunch atheist, did not believe in God, and realized that no one had ever put Jesus on trial. No one had ever put the claims of Jesus' death and resurrection to see if these claims were actually true. And so as an atheist and as a very intelligent, educated man, um, goes through the process like he would do for any case, gathers the evidence, takes interviews, compiles it, and at the end of his journey, he becomes a Christian. He's so moved by the overwhelming amount of evidence that he finds himself not only a Christian, but turning into a book called The Case for Christ. And you can, you can buy it today. It became a national bestseller. His name is Lee Strobel. And is someone who, with the intent of proving that the death and resurrection, the life, the claims of who Jesus were, were a hoax, found himself so compelled by the evidence that he could no longer push it away. And so I wanted to go over just some of that, just some of the evidence, specifically with Christ's death of why we can believe with with accuracy um, that this happened. And so six things that we're gonna be covering tonight uh, because there's a few greater historical events in history that have so much certainty. Uh, Number one, we're gonna look at the physical nature of the cross and how it was designed to cause death. Number two, uh, we're going to look at eyewitnesses' accounts. Number three, extra-biblical, extra-biblical literature, literature outside the text. Uh, historical soundness, humbling textual details, and prophetic fulfillment. So uh, let's go through each one of these things. So physical nature of the cross. And this is important because when we look at the cross, one of our greatest pieces of evidence to know that the cross actually did what it was supposed to do is it was designed by the Roman Empire, not to torture someone, but to kill them. It was an execution tool. And I don't want to get into so much of the detail, but the way that they would design the cross to go forth with the amount of blood loss that Jesus had on top of the normal cross, um, the amount of, of, of essentially suffocating yourself because you could only pull yourself up from your hands and your feet where the nails were stuck in. And the sheer amount of shock and pain that you went in uh, which would, um, would make it certain that that person would die. And they had a practice that if they hadn't died after a certain amount of hours, they'd just go break their legs. They couldn't lift themselves up and they would die by suffocation. They were so certain that Jesus had died that they didn't even need to break his legs. And so there's... There's this element where we can understand that this is exactly how it was designed. Uh, number two, there's medical evidence that when they pierced Jesus' side, uh, it talks about how there's blood and water that came out of his side was as actually medical confirmation that he no longer was living. And even if, after all that, you're like, well, maybe he's still alive. Uh, he would have been wrapped in 75 pounds of linen and spices and laid in a closed tomb for multiple days, where even if he had survived at that appointment, because of the lack of medical care would have died in that place. And so the, the evidence would point to that Jesus, just the physical nature of the cross would lead to Jesus' death. Secondly, we have eyewitness accounts um, from the gospel writers, uh, but also professional Roman executioners. We have their account, all the way up to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who would have, who would have stated that Jesus had died as well. Uh, next we have Uh, not just what the Bible says, because you might be like, well, I don't even believe the Bible. Fine. Uh, There are other historians, both believers and unbelievers, who point to Jesus' actual death, one of them being Josephus, who was one of the most famous Jewish historians, did not follow Jesus as the Messiah, but clearly depicted that Jesus was dead in his writings. Next, let's talk about just the historical soundness. So so maybe you're like, okay, cool. Yeah, probably died because the cross was so bad. Uh, there's eyewitnesses accounts, both within followers of Jesus and outside of followers of Jesus. But how sure, can we, how sure is that literature uh, compared to other historical literature? Well, this is how we judge. Most historic events that we would, if you read in a history book, have about 10 to 20 manuscripts identifying that this actually happened. Um, and sometimes those manuscripts are separated as far as 1,000 years and, the, and so these are like Alexander the Great ruled 10 to 20 manuscripts that we have saying that. The Bible, the, the recording of Jesus' death has 5,700 of them. Uh, not separated from 1,000 years, but from within one generation of it. And so the sheer amount of litter, um, literature, historical soundness to that, um, it's pretty immense compared to any other event that people would just say, oh yeah, that happened. That's a part of history. Next, we have humbling textual details. And so if some, let's just say, still don't believe it. Uh, they made it up. Well, the problem is how they wrote it is not how you would write something if you were making up a story, for a few reasons. One, they put women as the eyewitnesses to this account. And women did not have a testimony that would uphold in court. So if they were trying to fabricate a story, they would not put women as those who observed the actual event happening. Secondly, the betrayal of themselves is incredibly shameful, especially in that culture. They weren't there, they weren't courageous, they weren't bold, they were scared and they were running. Um, And so there is uh, just the amount of details of, of showing that would lean to, this is not a persuasive script. This is an actual eyewitness account. And lastly, maybe the most compelling for me is just the sheer amount of prophetic fulfillment that Jesus' death has. Let me explain. So in the Old Testament, there are 366 prophecies about a Messiah that would come. Um, all sorts of different time, who he would be, where he would come from, what kind of culture, what tribe he would come from, when he would come, all sorts. And some, some professors from a university in Texas got together, and they decided, well, let's, let's figure out the likelihood of someone fulfilling eight of those prophecies, uh, right place, born at the right time, to the right kind of parents, and just kind of laid it out. For someone to, f- to fulfill eight of the 366 prophecies, they came up with a number, I don't know how they do this, but one in seven trillion for one person to fulfill all those. Um, and just to give us kind of a mental image of what that would look like, if you took a silver dollar and you filled the entire state of Texas with them, and then you took one of the silver dollars and marked an X on it, threw it into the middle of Texas and then you pay for a helicopter to take you all over Texas and to pick one of those coins up and it being the one that had an X mark on it has as much likelihood as someone fulfilling eight of those prophecies. Jesus fulfilled all of them. It's astounding. And maybe you're like, I'm not convinced. (laughs) Um, That's that's fine. But I just want to let you know at this point, It takes a significant amount of more faith for you to believe that Jesus did not die on the cross than it takes for me to believe here with all the evidence and to clearly be able to understand Jesus had died on the cross. But here comes the next question. Why? Why did Jesus have to die? And did he have to die on a cross? And so let's let's kind of dive into that uh, section of the evening. And I just want to give you three Uh, three prominent themes of why Jesus had to die on the cross. Uh, Number one is to fulfill scripture. The cross is the loving centerpiece and narrative climax of the unified redemptive story of scripture. Number two, to defeat Satan. The cross demonstrates the decisive and irreversible victory over death, hell, and the grave by by rendering Satan defeated. And thirdly, to make us righteous. The cross forever satisfies God's righteous requirement to be in relationship with him by his own loving and merciful sacrifice. So not that these are all of the reasons, but these are three of probably the most significant reasons why Jesus had to die on the cross. So let's go over that first one, to fulfill scripture. So remember the moment when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Greek word there is he's literally shrilling, he's screaming that out. And in that moment, you just, kind of, you just kind of imagine Jesus coming to the end of himself, losing it all, and saying, where are you, God? And I think there's some truth in that, but we can't miss the fact that Jesus is actually quoting a Bible verse. He's quoting a specific Bible verse in his agony. A- agony. Because in that moment, he's trying to tell us something, that my death is actually a part of a greater story. And let me refer you back to this story it's telling, and he's quoting Psalm 22. I just want to read you Psalm 22. This is written by David 800 years before the cross ever happened. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer By night, but I find no rest. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. I am poured out like water, and all my bones out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Does this sound familiar to anyone? What's interesting is this literally described Jesus' execution to a T. What's interesting about Psalm 22 is none of this ever happened to David at all. None of it. When were his bones out of joint? When were his hands and feet pierced? When were his clothes divided? And so this is one of those hundreds of prophecies that the Holy Spirit 800 years prior is inspiring David to write about an execution he's not experienced. But someday the true king would. And so when Jesus, in that moment, he quotes Psalm 22 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just screaming out in anguish, he's having a massive signpost back to the entire chapter. All of this is me. The clothes you're dividing, the sponge in my mouth, the bones you're seeing, the mocking that you're doing, the piercings on my, the entire chapter, it's all me. I am the fulfillment. The climax of the story of Scripture comes to this moment. And the reason why this is such a big deal for us is because without the cross, the Scriptures just become empty, empty promises. But because of the cross, everything ties together. Everything that, that, that people have longed for and waited for for centuries and generations now has found its rest in Jesus on the cross. And this is a massive reason. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Because the cross was never God's plan B. It was always God's plan A. It was never an oops. It was never I got to go fix this. It was always a part of the centerpiece of the narrative, the redemptive narrative of Scripture. Right in the middle is the cross. And it was intentional and it was on purpose. The second two points I want to talk about, why did Jesus have to die on the cross, comes from a very long debate on a word called atonement. And atonement is is. It's kind of, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? And there are incredibly smart uh, men and women who have debated this for hundreds of years, and I'm not about to throw my hat into the rink and be like, here's my thoughts, but I'd love to share with you some of just kind of the the major theories of what is happening on the cross, and we're going to focus on two of them. And so the the four major theories of what's happening on the cross are these. Number one, it's the ransom theory or the Christus victus theory. And this is the theory that what Jesus did on the cross is he's addressing that humanity was under the rule and reign of Satan and at the cross, he accomplishes victory over him, releases us from um, not just Satan, but his rule and reign of death, hell, and the grave, and it's finished, uh, this, is, this has been held for hundreds of years as a theory within the church. Uh, the second theory is the substitution theory or penal substitution. This is probably the most common or what we have heard the most, uh, and this is is the legal term which talks about that there must be judgment or justice paid for the sins committed. And that death that Jesus died was our punishment. He took upon himself and imputed his righteousness on him. Does this sound familiar? This is probably the most common uh, theory that we have presented to us. Uh, The the third theory, which I find actually probably the, the least biblically sound, is the moral example theory that somehow the cross was the highest example Jesus gave us of what it means to be human, to lay down your life and to love. And although that is the greatest image of love we have, for it to be condensed to just that, I feel is missing the point pretty massively. Uh, the fourth theory is the satisfaction theory, and it is this this sense that at that moment, all of the angst and the wrath and the judgment that God had stored up was now satisfied, kind of goes hand in hand with the substitution theory. And so the reason I bring up these four theories uh, is, for, is really for one purpose. As I personally, I've been studying these different theories and, and learning some things I never really thought about before, is I walked away not with the sense of like, I have to pick one. I walked away with a sense of, "Man, maybe the cross is bigger than I ever imagined." Maybe what Jesus accomplished at the cross, the reason why there are people who talk about what is it accomplishing is because just the grand, uh, just the magnificent, profound sense of what the cross accomplishes, is uncontainable. It's that massive. It's that big, and I want to focus on just these these two intro theories. Again, this is skimming the surface. But two of those those first theories that I think touch on some pretty key biblical themes. And so we talked about the why did Jesus die on the cross? Number one is to fulfill scripture. Number two, what we're gonna talk about is to defeat Satan. So, in the in the very beginning of the creation of humanity. We see that Adam and Eve fall to sin because of the temptation of a serpent. And at that moment, God addresses the man, the woman, and the serpent who is the embodiment of Satan, and he gives them a curse as a result of their sin. And, in, and I love this. I didn't realize this a couple, a couple years ago, but in Genesis 3, verses 15, is one of the first messianic prophecies in all of scripture when it says this, talking to the serpent, so that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Meaning, hey, there's going to be an offspring, a son of man, who's going to come and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And in the very beginning breaths of Scripture, the Holy Spirit reveals this great narrative, this great war, this battle that has been raging. And one of the purposes of the cross is that is the moment where the, the head of the serpent is crushed. It looks like Jesus is done, right? The heel has been struck, but in actuality, that is the day where Satan Satan's defeat has been assured. Now, you might be here, and, and, and immediately the question comes up, Well, if Satan's been defeated, why is there still so much darkness and pain in the world? And and probably the best analogy that I've heard for this is the analogy of D-Day. So when our troops stormed the beach of Normandy in World War II, at that moment when they took the beach was the moment where the war switched. There was no longer any way that the Nazis could win the war. Yet... Even though um, Hitler and the Nazi regime knew that they had been defeated, they did not stop fighting. And the months that led up after that moment, after the beach of Normandy, were the bloodiest of the entire war. That's where we live. The cross is our D-Day. The war has been finalized. The victory has been assured. But the battle is still being fought. But the important thing for us to recognize is at the cross, how we fight and where we fight from changed. Satan's power and his dominion shifted and ended. And we now can live in that reality. The last thing I want to bring up and for me, it's the one that I continue just to be blown away by, is that not only does the cross fulfill scripture, not only does the cross promise the defeat of Satan and prove it, but it also provides the the means in which for us to be united with God again, where our sins are atoned for. And the way to best understand this is to go back and to understand that God has always been trying to get his people back. And he does it through the means of what's called a covenant. And the greatest covenant that we really see is that when the Israelite people were under, the, under slavery of Egypt, God sends Moses as a rescuer, brings them into the desert, and gives them the law. And the law was precious, you know, now, nowadays we're like, I hate, you know, I hate the law, I hate restrictions, I'm my own person, I'm a snowflake or whatever. But back then, the law was, was so precious for them because it made them who they were. And in the law, God gave them very, very clear guidelines, specifically how to connect back to him. Because if you remember last week, God's holiness does not allow us to approach him just flippantly however we want. He wants to be approached in a certain way in regards to his holiness. And so he very clearly said, this is how you can worship me. This is how you can approach me. But you can't come just as you are. And here's the reason. Your sin has made you unable to stand before my presence. So here's the system. We're going to create a tabernacle and then eventually a temple. And in this temple, we're going to have different layers. And only the high priest and then the, can enter into the, the inner layer where my, my presence is. And in that moment, I'm going, you can bring a spotless animal, a unblemished lamb, and all the sins you have committed are going to be paid for through the death of this animal. And so he creates this whole system. And the whole purpose of that system was not religiosity. It was Intimacy is to come back into relationship with with his people. And so when Jesus is on the scene, he starts making these radical claims, not just about a sacrifice, but about the entire sacrificial system. Listen, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he starts to tell people, I'm the temple. That temple took you 170 years to build. I'm gonna destroy it and rebuild it in three days. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I'm the temple. Oh, the high priest? I'm the high priest. Oh, the presence in the holy of holies? It's my spirit. And on the cross is the moment where he said, not only am I the temple, not only am I the high priest, not only is my spirit the presence that lies within, I am the lamb itself. And in this moment, Jesus is saying, I fulfill everything everything that you have needed to come back into relationship with God can now be found and only found in me. This is a incredibly bold statement to make. And it's one that the author of Hebrews spends most of his letter addressing, saying it's it's all Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled all of it. And what that what that means for us is astounding. It means that we get to come in, in, a, in a cool chapel by the beach and hear some contemporary worship songs and sing, and the presence of God is literally right here. You know how much people would have been have given to experience what we get to experience. And when we we just so normalized it, that part of me it's, it's sad. But what Jesus purchased us for the cross is this bold confidence that we now get to own and walk into the presence of God because everything that was deserved to be given to us was laid upon Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, so that he became a curse for us so that we could become the righteousness of Christ. So now when we enter into the presence of God, he looks at every single one of you who have, who have given your life and hidden your life in Christ and he does not see your morality or lack thereof, he does not see your performance, or lack thereof he sees his son the righteousness that his son possesses is imputed to you because of the death he died on the cross it is overwhelming and astounding to come to that realization again and again and again why did jesus have to die on the cross because it fulfills scripture he defeats satan and he provides the means for us to become in right relationship with god again all of it and more is accomplished on Friday 2,000 years ago. And my, and my hope is that we don't move so quickly into this week without us just stopping and thanking God and being overwhelmed by the beauty of the cross. Which leads us to kind of our third objective tonight. Okay, if Jesus died on the cross, if we understand why he had to die what does that mean for my life today? How does my life change as a result of what happened on Calvary 2,000 years ago? Um, Your answer, if you're taking notes, is the word everything. (laughs) Everything changes. If the cross is true, and if the cross is as complete as scripture has made it out to be, everything must change. Everything changes. And just to go back to those three reasons, just to to talk through those, uh, number one, because Jesus fulfilled all of Scripture, because of the overwhelming evidence and thoughtfulness of the narrative, the redemptive story of Scripture, we get to live in a faith we get to follow Jesus with a sense of certainty. I think oftentimes we think that our faith has to, has, for it to be faith has to feel magical or mythical, or this kind of sense of like, I just have to have the right emotions or feelings. And this is what I wanna say. The beauty of Jesus fulfilling scripture means that if your emotions are here or here, it's still true. It creates this certainty in our hearts. Um, I, I was talking to a friend who's going through a really, really deep depression. And, um, and her husband and her were really into apologetics and, they, and she said something really interesting. She's like, you know, there was months when the only thing I had to hold on to was the historical event of the cross. She's like, my emotions will not allow for anything else but I could cling to that because it was concrete. It was real. How's it blew me away? That's, that there is, this, there is this comfort, this sureness under our feet, that our faith does not have to waver based on our experience or our emotion, which are not bad things, by the way. I think emotions are a gift. And the fact that we can experience God is great. But I also think that the fact that there is hard truth, factual evidence for the cross that Jesus died on is so comforting. Because it's something I can anchor to on my good days and my bad days. The second thing is, because Jesus has assured us victory, that changes where we live from. There's a really big difference from when you're fighting for victory and you're fighting from victory, and excuse the cliche, but it's true. When you you think you might lose, you act differently than if you believe you've already won. And for the Christians, our life should be marked with the idea of victory in every scenario, in every situation. It doesn't mean that the pain is less. It doesn't mean that we're being fake. We can be incredibly real and honest just the way Jesus was. But even in Jesus' honesty, There was a certain sense where he knew exactly the will of the Father. And on this end of the cross, we know that that will has now been accomplished, and we get to possess the victory that has happened as a result of the cross. So just one one of my, this analogy I like to think of is, um, if you guys ever DVR'd a sporting event, super, you really wanted to watch, and you spend the entire day not trying to make eye contact with anyone or open your phone because you just want to watch the event, um, or if you, like, you've recorded you know, like the season finale of The Bachelor, God forbid, <laughs> or something like that. Um, and, and you're just like, oh, I can't go on social media until like, why? I mean, and we kind of make all these steps to make sure because what we, what we actually wanna see is not the result. We actually wanna, there's something we crave in the drama and the anxiousness of what's gonna happen. And what happens when someone tells you the end? What happens when you watch that show, that game? It ruins everything. everything, right? You're just like, I mean, do you? I mean, do you even do you even watch it? Do you even worry about it? Because that's gone. I want to tell you guys something. Jesus at the cross has already told you the end result of the game. He's told us, and although in a sporting event or in a show that robs us because we wanna enjoy the drama, we wanna enjoy the anxiety induced uh, because of it. In our spirituality, it gives us peace. We already know who wins. And so you can just sit back, eat some salt and vinegar chips, right? Just drink a soda and you're relaxing because you know who wins. There is this sense where you, and and we're kind of making light of it, but it's the word peace. And this is why I think Jesus, as he's he's nearing the cross, says, you will have troubles of many kind, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. He doesn't say, all your problems are solved. You'll never suffer. You'll never have pain. You know what he says? I won. I already won. There's nothing you're gonna go through in life that will not end in eternal redemption. You hear me? And we may need to wait to the other side of eternity. We may need to wait until we are with Jesus face to face, but I'm so thankful that it's coming. I'm thankful that I am not trapped in an existence where I am uncertain if pain will last forever. I know it'll end. The cross promises me and that changes how I live even in the midst of my pain. There's a hope that cannot be robbed from me because of the cross. And lastly, I get to have relationship with the one my soul has been longing for. I, th- I think when we chase prestige, power, a relationship, a promotion, I think why there's this epidemic of pornography. I think when the world, uh, and by the way, when we as humanity, when we're chasing these things, We're looking for a band-aid to cover a deeper wound that we are longing for true love and true intimacy that is only found when we're reunited with God. And because of the cross, not only is that available to me, I get to walk in with confidence and boldness, that grace, that mercy, that I can't get from another person on this earth. I can get every single day at the throne. When you're in a relationship and you feel like, man, I wish they treated me differently, there's a God who will treat you the way that you desperately need. When you're in a work environment that's abusive and toxic and you're like, man, I can't wait for there to be justice, you can go to a God who is just. And this all points back to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. This is what I'd like to do, I'd love for you just to bow your heads with me. I'm gonna read you Romans eight, just a few verses from Romans chapter eight. Such a beautiful, man, just read the whole chapter, it's so good. And this is our chapter that we're really taking through this series of Love Conquers All. I just wanna read you what's happened because of the cross. Just close your eyes. Just listen, let these words sink into your soul. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. now, if we are his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. You guys can keep your eyes closed. I want to read you one last quote by Thomas Kempis. He's a follower of Jesus who lived in the 1400s and he writes this from his book called The Inner Life. Listen to these words. In the cross is salvation. In the cross is life. In the cross is protection against our enemies. In the cross is infusion of heavenly sweetness. In the cross is strength of mind. In the cross is joy of spirit. In the cross is excellence of virtue. In the cross is perfection of holiness. There is no salvation of soul nor hope of eternal life except in the cross.